You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. It's always fun to go in evolution of a new species. It makes me smile whenever you say pink fairy armadillos. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so, so cute. Oh my god. Oh, I love this podcast. What can they teach us? These species are pretty well studied in the reproductive world because they're known for their poly and Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. All right, first question. What is this thing? Like, what is this thing? (laughs) A pink fairy armadillo. Like, what is this thing? <laughs> it is amazing. And Chris, I had so much fun prepping for this week's podcast. I had never heard of the pink fairy armadillo. And even though I pride myself as an ex-armadillo keeper, I took care of him for years at the Lincoln Park Zoo. I cared for and learned a lot about the southern three-banded armadillo, which we'll, we'll be talking about several species of armadillo on this podcast today. But thank you to Jordan on Instagram who reached out to us and suggested the pink fairy armadillo. Yes. And I cocked my head a little bit and said, I need to look this up really quick. And yes, then, yes. lo and behold, it is an incredible species of armadillo. We're going to have so much fun today. The The descriptions that we're going to give will not do it justice. <laughs> no, no. At all. Uh, but... Hopefully today you'll learn a lot about armadillos in general, just because they have such unique physiology, mm-hmm. a lot of fun facts. Uh, they're a really cool species to look at. There's many different species that all have some really fun names besides pink fairy armadillo, which for the record is pink. We'll talk about that. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and it's exciting for me, Angie, because I, you know, this is uh, from an order we have yet to cover. So the Singulata which is basically armadillos. So th- we we haven't covered them before. So it's always exciting when you get into a new, you know, order of animal, uh, different physiology, different behaviors, uh, you know, where they are in the ecological niche. But this is the smallest armadillo in the world too. And they are adorable. The, the pictures don't do it justice. I, I found a really good YouTube video of one digging. So I will definitely post that in the show notes. And I, I highly suggest everybody go and look at that. And see this little little guy or gal digging in the sand. They are amazing. Amazing, amazing creatures. It's going to be fun. And throughout the podcast, too, we'll talk about several of these species that are either endangered, near threatened, or just a quick spoiler alert, the pink fairy armadillo is data deficient by the IUCN, which means we don't know enough about them. So it's presumed that the numbers are low. And that's why we're going to be turning our attention today to the armadillos because they really do need our concern and care. Yeah, absolutely. That's why it's exciting to, to always cover a, a new species like this. Uh, just really quickly, you know, thank you to our Patreon supporters. We actually are sending money to Sea Shepherd and the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Society. So thank you. You know, we're going to donate that money in your name. And again, just what is Patreon? You can go uh, click on the show notes. There's a link. It supports Angie and I. 
We're in the midst of redesigning our website, which is pretty expensive. So it helps keep us going, pay the bills. And it's just basically, you know, one nice cup of coffee a month or a trip to Starbucks if you go there or wherever you're, or Pete's Coffee in California, one of my favorites. You know, it helps support us. It helps conservation. We're giving money back. So thank you so much for that. And as I always say, if you don't have a dollar to spare, we totally understand, especially during these tough times. But you can always give us a glowing review on iTunes. For example, eHens99, thank you so much. Yes. Yes, yes. For your (laughs) five-star review. It was wonderful. It was personal. I had my pregnancy hormones crying a little bit. So (laughs) make Angie cry. Put a a glowing review on iTunes. Uh, We really appreciate it. And it does help get our numbers up. It helps get the podcast more circulation. So if you can do that, it just takes a few minutes from your phone or obviously online. So thank you for that, eHens99. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And then just really quickly, if you're into animal nutrition and you want to learn more, uh, I do have a second podcast out there called the Equine Connection. You know, it's more focused on horses, but you can learn a lot about some physiology and nutrition, short 20 minute episodes. So give that a listen. Uh, I appreciate it. Yes, definitely check out Chris's new podcast. It's wonderful, especially if you love anything with hooves or just in general ungulates, you'll learn a lot, especially us horse lovers out there. And now, Chris, I have to say, for me personally, though, this armadillo episode is dedicated to the one and only meatball. Okay, <laughs> okay, meatball. Are you? So da- let me guess. Uh-huh. I, I, let me guess. I could see. Okay, a little meatball. One of your favorites. Okay. Yes. So Meatball was a southern three-banded armadillo that I got to work with at the Lincoln Park Zoo, and she—it wasn't a he. She was an education ambassador animal that would go out on programs all across the city of Chicago or when students came in and they would get to be up and close to meatball, learn all about armadillo behavior, physiology, and conservation because the Southern three-banded armadillo is near threatened. And the Lincoln Park Zoo, kudos to them, they work with the Species Survival Program or the SSP to breed them. And make sure that they are reproducing with good, sound genetics so that they can keep this species raft alive in case the populations in South America crash. So to all the keepers out there at Lincoln Park Zoo at Small Mammal Reptile House and Children's Zoo, love you guys. Thank you for taking such good care of the armadillos. And Meatball, she was just an angel armadillo. She, uh, We'll talk a little bit more about how armadillos roll. But for whatever reason, her physiology was like slightly different. And so she actually couldn't roll in a ball, uh, but she loved her little belly to be tickled. And that's when I fell in love. I, like I said, I love hoof horns and antlers, but meatball helped show me that even the small creatures have a lot to give and teach. And she was just so special in my life. So it's one of the reasons why I'm here today, meeting, meeting and working with creatures like that, big and small, whether they have armor or feathers or scales or shells, uh, led me to this point today. So thank you, Meatball. I know. I love those educational animals. They're, just as kids, I remember them and, and how they inspired me at that young age. So thank you, Meatball. And <laughs> Switching gears, Angie, from meatballs mm-hmm. to pink fairy armadillos. <laughs> That's a good transition. Yes. Good, good, good luck describing this creature. This is the 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 star nosed moles up there is the most obscure thing we've ever covered. This is right behind that. This is right behind it. Yes, Chris, it is somewhat out of this world. It's really, really fun. But like most armadillos, the pink fairy armadillo has the leathery armor-like shell, and of course, long, sharp claws for digging. They have short little legs and they kind of scuttle about on the ground and they move. They can move pretty quickly. And the pink fairy armadillo also has a pointy snout too, which is quite charming. But where the pink fairy armadillo stands out from most species of armadillos that you're familiar with either seeing um, under human care at a zoo or in the wild, depending on where you live. These pink armadillos have a dorsal armored shell that basically has 24 bands. And it allows the shell to become flexible. It's not hard and rigid as you would think of like a tortoise shell or something like that. 
And a lot of when we talk more about taxonomy and species, a lot of the armadillos are categorized by the number of these quote unquote flexible bands that they have. And so the pink fairy armadillo has those bands of armor, but they are pink. And when I mean pink, very pink. Yes, yes, very pink. <laughs> so yeah. We'll talk about how they get this color in their shell because it is different. They, most armadillos have like a brown, tan, orange colored shell. So uh, these guys really, really stand out. And where the armor or the shell basically meets the body, they have fur. And the pink fairy armadillo also has this beautiful white, yellow, cream, silky colored fur that sticks out and covers basically like its shoulders and legs until you get to the claws that are also covered a little bit in armor and those are pink too. And just to add extra flair, the pink fairy armadillo has a spatula shaped pink armored tail that basically sticks out from the rear or base of its shell. So this armor that runs dorsally basically from its snout all the way to its tail. And then it has the white silky fur underneath it. Very charming. And of course, the color pink is very unique in this species compared to the other 20 or 21, depending on how you count species of armadillos that we'll briefly talk about today. And then if they couldn't be cute enough, if you look at them in the face, um, they have, of course, a pink nose, but then they have these cute little beady eyes because we'll learn that they live a subterranean underground lifestyle. So it's not important for them to have big, bold eyes like some of the other hoofstock species or that we talk about. <laughs> Just laughing because it is so hard to describe this animal. You have to look at a picture. Don't if you're not if you're driving, don't stop and look. Just as you hopefully as you pulled up the podcast, you saw the image of this thing because that top shell on the upper half of their body, and then it's just so furry on the lower half of their body, and then these huge claws. It's just very hard to describe, but they they are adorable. When you watch the YouTube video, I really, really it was like that is that is a cute, cute animal, and they're tiny. I mean, like I said, the smallest armadillo, Angie, they get up to five inches long. That's like nothing. Yeah, like chipmunk size or hold it in your palm of your hand size. Yes. Tiny. And Mm -hmm. they only weigh up to five ounces or 120 grams. That's about two chicken eggs. Mm-hmm. You know, medium-sized chicken eggs. You hold those in your hands. That's that's how heavy this animal is. It's 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 a small creature that lives. And this was you know, kind of surprising. You know, so I loved about discovering this new species or family of, of animals is they're endemic to Argentina or South America. Mm-hmm. So they are really it's they like the deserts and scrublands. So they call it a neotropical region. So it's definitely warmer. Because sometimes when I think of Argentina, I think it's colder for some reason. I think of Patagonia and stuff. Yeah, in the mountains, definitely, but not in like the flat plains. Right, right. In the northern part, I mean, they're in the central part, but the northern part's really jungle, right? I mean, it's like Brazilian rainforest or coming down or not. It's it's, it's not rainforest. It's a little bit more temperate. uh, Temperate, okay. Temperate in forests and scrublands and things like that. But uh, it's really not that cold until you keep going down towards, of course, if you think of Tierra de Fuego, which my best friend Nani tried so hard to convince me to go there. And I said, no, <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, Let's how far just... south did you get? Because so, I remember we talked about mm-hmm. it in Chinchillas. Yeah. Yeah. So we basically took a bus all around pretty much in a giant circle through South America. And on that leg of the tour, we were in Buenos Aires, and then we went to uh, Falls de Iguazu, which is an amazing waterfall similar to, in North America to our uh, our Niagara Falls or mm-hmm. over in Africa to the Victoria Falls, which yeah. I've seen. And so, but then from there, we, we hopped on a bus and crossed directly west over to a mountain town called Bariloche, which is at the... Um, the, the base of the Andes and it's, it's like a ski town. I, for me, it reminded me a lot of like Lake Tahoe uh, and yeah. I spent some time there. And then from there we went on, we took another bus to West to uh, Santiago, Chile, right, and then, right, right. then up into Peru and Ecuador. And yeah. so the story goes many stories, that's different <laughs> paths for the different day. Even uh, I was actually reliving uh, some old, uh, some old travel backpacker stories to one of my friends, Andy, the other day. And he's like, I've never heard that one. That's like, oh, there's, (laughs) there's plenty of them. 
But yeah, yeah. but I'm kicking myself for several reasons because I was young and I could have stayed longer and things like that. But mm-hmm. I I didn't see any armadillos in the wild when I was there, let alone the pink fairy armadillo, which even researchers can't really find that often. We'll talk a lot about that too when we get into their conservation. But just in general, I didn't do as much uh, wildlife viewing that I would now if I had to go back that right. I would take take the time and do that. Right, 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 right. That's why I always love going to South America and hearing about your exploits down there with uh and, and all the stuff you got to see and, and do yeah my so. yeah my south american travel buddies were nani and matt so yeah. thank you to them for hanging out with me and exploring south america and then central america i did with kimmy and aaron and my sister mm-hmm. molly so yes uh, travel in your yeah. 20s before you have kids and own houses yes. and all that <laughs> kind of stuff <laughs> if you take anything away from this podcast Go travel. Go back. Yes. Come to New Zealand. Come see me. Say hi. Or go to Australia. And then uh, get down to South America. And then, so, Angie, when you look at the pink fairy armadillo, you know, there's not a ton of, of data. This is a species that, that that needs study. But what we do know, especially when we get to what they their diet is, is they, they do like to eat ants. Mm-hmm. So when you think of an insectivore, mm-hmm. they play a key, key role in the ecosystem. Absolutely. And not only are they a key role in the ecosystem as far as nutrition, pest control, the food web, armadillos in general burrow, and a lot of them burrow underground, uh, and they dig out these caverns. And once again, we're not sure exactly how deep or how long the pink fairy armadillos stay underground and in their burrows, things like that. But a species that we definitely know more about is the giant armadillo, which is also near-threatened, and we'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast. But research has shown that in giant armadillos, they only stay in their like dugout burrow for a few days. And then they leave it behind, and then they go dig another one, probably because they're looking for food as well. But these underground burrows and the places where they dig for insects become habitats and shelters for other species to occupy. So they're playing this ecological kind of home engineer for Mm -hmm, several mm -hmm. other species. And I know we talked about that, like in pileated woodpecker, as far as they leave behind holes that like a lot of other woodland animals will inhabit. So therefore, as their populations crash, that could hinder all these other species. And then even more specifically with a pink fairy armadillo, What we do know, and we'll talk about how they thermoregulate and a couple other really cool physiological features about these creatures, but they're really desert adapted for the most part. And because of some of these characteristics that they have, it severely limits the habitat that they can occupy. So it's definitely known that pink fairy armadillos are extremely sensitive to changes in the weather or the climate. And therefore, they can act as kind of a canary in the coal mine to what's going on in that region. If they're too stressed out and the climate's changing too dramatically, be it hot or cold because of global climate change, this can really reduce population numbers. And as far as a pink fairy armadillo goes, researchers are having a hard time tracking them to begin with and find them to begin with. They think their population, even though they're considered data deficient by the IUCN, that some of these environmental conditions and global climate change has perhaps already impacted them. So a little bit of climate change for these guys, as cool as they are and as like unique as their physiology is, they're really, they're a specialist for where they live. They're not a generalist. And so a climate change could absolutely wipe them out easily. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's something we've always talked about. Uh, in all of our podcasts, you know, uh, going back, especially when we look at the Arctic and stuff, I think just last week we were talking about it again. So, yeah, it's definitely that's going to impact these guys down there in South America. And that's one of the hot spots I, I highlighted, I believe, last week, you know, the central uh, South America where it's heating up more than average across the planet. So this week, Angie, I, I, I wanted to take a snapshot of conservation in 2020. I, I started off wanting to look at ecotourism. Because I know talking to some of these experts, you know, especially going into last year, it, it, it just ecotourism was taking a, a huge hit. So, so I did a little digging and 
you know, in the beginning of the pandemic with COVID in 2020, people thought, oh, nature's rebounding with less human activity. I mean, we saw animals in the streets of cities, the air quality. I know in LA when I was there was getting much better. It just, you know, they, they showed the dolphins or all the fish you could see in Venice. I mean, just all these things that you saw on the internet. And so people thought, oh, great, nature's coming back. Well, I mean, human activities returned in a lot of these places. So that that has gone away quickly. But just looking at things like ecotourism, ecotourism in 2020 took a massive, massive hit. And there billions and billions of dollars has been lost in revenue across the globe, and that's impacting conservation. Some other things in 2020 that increased, unfortunately, due to this, because remember, we've talked about ecotourism in the past. We've had a lot of experts on. It helps fund programs for conservation, but also anti-poaching efforts. So with less tourists, less park staff, less anti-poaching units, we've seen a, a sharp increase in poaching in 2020. So in, in South America, you know, where this, this armadillo is at, in Asia and Africa, poaching has increased. So I went and found a couple examples, and, and one is in Uganda's Queen Elizabeth National Park, a place I w- I'm dying to go one day. Yeah, really, really want to yeah. go there. Yeah, I got to get up to see the gorillas. But they have seen a huge increase in the trade of pangolin. So we've talked about that, pangolin scales. Other parts, so the male anatomy of the elephant, you know, in the interest of young kids, I'll just leave it at that, has now reached a huge demand where bull elephants are being killed for their genitalia, which is seen as a delicacy or now traditional medicine in Asia. So they've seen this this huge increase. And just uh, last year in May, 14 Chinese nationals were arrested in Uganda. They had t- 10 elephant uh, male anatomy with them. It was worth $4.5 million. And they had half a kilogram of pangolin scales. So they're seeing this. And sadly, a silverback gorilla was poached for the first time in four years in Uganda. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So... It's just the lockdowns, the the decrease in tourism has, has hit Uganda hard. And then I went and looked at another region of the world, and that was Indonesia. So here's how the pandemic is playing out over there. As we all know, the economies across the, world, the planet have taken a huge, massive hit. It just has. So countries are struggling to bring in revenue, to maintain some sort of stream. So in Indonesia, the government passed a bunch of deregulating laws last year, and now there's a a huge land grab underway in Indonesia for mining, logging, plantations for palm oil, other companies. So in some of these less rich nations that are struggling to survive, you're starting to see more exploitation of natural resources. Then... A little bit different than Uganda, and we're seeing this across the world, like in South America. Poaching's increased, but not so much like for elephant tusks or parts or pangolin scales, but for food. Sure. Desperate times. Yeah. Yeah. People are struggling. And so you're seeing a lot of animals being poached for food. Uh, So that's going on in Indonesia. And then this one thing too, remember that holding facility, Sumatran rhinos that they're Mm -hmm. building? Mm-hmm. That's on hold. Oh yeah, because mm. because of the pandemic. Really quick, uh, tourism. Any good news? <laughs> I'll get there. Okay. So tourism in Africa, it, it, it's down ninety percent. So you know you're seeing a lot less tourists in Africa. Uh, you're seeing a lot less donations. There was even a study, and I knew this was getting long, but it, if if you're interested in it, uh, you can Google this. It's conserving Africa's wildlife and wildlands through the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Authors are Peter Lindsay and others. It was in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, published in 2020 in July. So they went and looked and said, you know, it's definitely having an impact as early as July. And as this pandemic is ongoing, it's having detrimental effects. So the good news, 
there are construction projects on hold, mining operations on hold. There, there is a lot of expansion across the planet that is on hold right now because people are in lockdown or sick. And so that it, there's some good going with it. And in my optimistic mind, I'm thinking, well, good. It gives conservationists time to file legal challenges and strategize on how to stop some of this stuff. And I will say this in closing on this topic. The source of COVID is still debatable, but it has put a huge spotlight on wildlife trafficking, mm-hmm. a major, massive spotlight. So there is pressure on governments to halt its trade and cease. So hopefully as we come out of this in the next year or two, we see more government intervention in trying to keep these wild animals out of our food supply. Well, Chris, I definitely thank you for ending on mostly a high note. Uh, But yeah, it's hard when we look at all that data, but we know it's out there. A lot of the conservation organizations that I follow through social media have been sharing this similar plea that we need help, we need more money, uh, because we need more rangers and things like that. So pick your favorite organization to, if you can, and give them a few bucks, give them your support, uh, because they do need it. And and if you have nothing else to do and you have a little bit of cash, travel. Go to some of those places yeah. that I went to when I was uh, young and 20 and had and had the time and the wherewithal to see the world because it definitely opened my eyes and helped shape me into who I am. So obviously because of the pandemic, you'll have to be picky where you go. But New Zealand, for instance, right, mm-hmm. might be mm-hmm. not a, a good place to backpack. But once we get the clearance to travel and a lot of the restrictions are lifted and the pandemic is on its way winding down – Hit the road. Go see some of these uh, favorite conservation places. Support them uh, through ecotourism. It's incredible, and they need all the help they can get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the vaccine? I mean, the the, the news, the news is like so dire out there. But always look at the positive. That's what we try to do with conservation. And 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 then the COVID front. I mean, vaccines are rolling. And it'll be interesting to listen to this episode in a couple of years. Yeah, I got my that. first shot. Oh, good. Yeah, yes. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Even pre- even being pregnant? Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Good. good. Absolutely. Well, yep. Good I have my good second on one in a yeah. couple weeks. Yes. Okay. Uh, of course, they haven't really studied it completely in pregnant ladies. But with it being a coronavirus, family relative, and of course, my personal health, where I've never had a negative re- reaction to a vaccine or anything like that, it seemed like a good fit. And I went ahead and decided that... Okay. The benefits could and may potentially outweigh uh, negative impacts to myself and yeah. or the baby if I do get it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I gotta I'm a, myself, I'm so. I'm a case for I, I'm told the University of Florida study me. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, hopefully those uh, antibodies, yeah, just just keep you safe. You know, it's just ugh. so. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out in the next few years. But you know, stay safe, and if you can get vaccinated. You know, and tra- when travel starts back up, yeah, please, please go support these places. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Now, looking at pink fairy armadillos, this was fun. You know, it's always fun to go in evolution of a new species. It makes me smile whenever you say pink fairy armadillos. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so cute. Oh, my God. Uh, I love this podcast. So, uh, okay. So, the order is Singulata, New World Placental Mammals, and, it, you know, it, there's a whole class of that. But armadillos are the only remaining family in this order. Okay. And the family is Clamophoridae, mm-hmm. and it's just all the armadillos. Now, the pink fairy armadillo genus is Clamiphorus. It's the only one in there. So the species name is Clamiphorus truncatus. Now, armadillos, huge family. You have, what, 20, 21 species? 2021, yes. Yeah. And they, some of their names are my, fa- my favorite. So <laughs> I just have to give a shout out. There's one called the big hairy armadillo. Yes, yes. The screaming hairy armadillo. Yes. The greater naked tail armadillo. And of course, don't forget yeah. about the southern and the northern naked tail armadillo. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. a hairy long nose. Yep. <laughs> then you're six banded and you're three banded. Yeah. You do have the greater fairy armadillo, but we're, we're definitely doing the pink fairy armadillo. Mm-hmm. So there is a bunch of them. Now, what's excite- what excites me about this is I learned or was reminded of a fact of this is why evolutionary biology fascinates me. So South America was isolated from the rest of the planet from 130 million years ago up to 3 million years ago. So for roughly 130 million years or close to it, South America was on its own. So all of these species were able to evolve in kind of a closed continent where they weren't influenced by migrating dinosaurs at the time or other species. It's just, they, they were stuck there. So they evolved there over millions and millions of years. And this is where armadillos evolved in this environment, you know? So it was just uh, amazing to read. Now, Zenartharth, oh, geez, Zenartha, was the first super order of mammals in South America. And they emerged about 60 million years ago on their own. Okay. So they weren't anywhere else on earth, just there. Then within a few million years, now armadillos, when you dig into it, there's not a lot known uh, about their evolutionary history. There, there's, you know, we have some stuff, but not a lot, but they figured around that time. So about 55 million years ago is when we start seeing a lot of other families of mammals emerge. So that's about when armadillos start making their first appearance. But the super order of the Xenartha, those include sloth and anteaters, which I found that to be really cool. Yeah, yeah. So these animals were isolated Mm -hmm. on South America as they evolved. Then we know, like, then it connected to Antarctica, and that's where we see some species crossover when Antarctica wasn't just a big ball of – or big – Iceland or whatever you want to call it, frozen tundra, not even tundra, just a frozen piece of dirt, <laughs> Antarctica. But uh, the fairy armadillo, first ancestor, they, they, they figured about 32 million years ago. So they, armadillos have been around a long, long, long time. They have been around a long time. And then as a whole, once that isthmus between Panama and today Panama and say, I think it's Colombia. And the tip, the northern tip of South America, once mm-hmm. that connected, then the armadillos went north into North America. I think some Caribbean islands, even, you know, probably some of that vegetative rafts that they've got on. And they just, that's when they just really kind of boomed into the 20 species we, we have today. 
Yeah, but really as far as like the southern United States, we only get the nine-banded armadillo and then the northern naked-tailed armadillo is found in Central America. But the nine-banded that's found in Florida, which I yep, have yep. in my yard at nighttime. and Yeah, I hear them. Yep, I yeah, them. Rainbow, whenever she's barking at nighttime out the window, I'm like, oh, there's the armadillo friend. But yep, uh, we, yep. but they, they're, they're mostly nocturnal, so we don't really get to see them that often uh, here where I live in Florida. But they're around, and they are least concerned. They're doing very well uh, mm-hmm. in Florida, except for maybe, like, unfortunately, a lot of times they're, they're struck by cars so that's probably one of the biggest issues they have but overall they've done i understand why they migrated north because they've done pretty well here as far as their population yeah yeah a great environment for them too now what was one one thing that i found interesting angie really quickly because we will talk a little bit about their shells or their you know their outer scoots overlapping scoots it really baffles scientists. So reading some of this about the evolution of them and, and why they developed this armor plating, they don't really know if it protected them against predators or how well it did. I suspect it did offer a little bit of protection of predators, but you know, it, it's not a clear case of say like a turtle shell where a turtle is, is very well protected, but they do note that it does protect them while they dig against mm-hmm. scraping bushes and and roots systems things like that parasites interestingly enough have less surface area to attach to them that makes sense sure mm-hmm. I- it maximizes heat loss so they can thermoregulate and, and so it helps them in other ways than just defense as we mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. so a scientist can't has not come out and say it definitely protects against predators. It probably offers some protection and it does these other things. So that's probably the beginning or the genesis of why they developed these shells and what gave them an advantage, evolutionary speaking. Well, and do you know what the shell is made out of? Keratin? Yes, Chris, it's keratin based, just like our fingernails or rhino horn uh, it's very densely packed once again so it, it it's very 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 hard uh the shells the scutes but all the species of armadillos have it obviously it's a trait that the uh the family has in common but the pink fairy armadillo is extremely unique because the shell or this armor is pink in color so this pink color is actually due to the fact that they're is a big network of blood vessels and their skin underneath their shell, which can be seen basically through the armor because it's a lighter in color. So with that, as you look at different pictures, either online or videos, sometimes the shell is more distinct pink, if you will. And then other times it's more pale rose, like white pink in color. And that's basically because its shell's not changing color, but as the armadillo thermoregulates and either is constricting or dilating blood vessels, depending on how it needs to thermoregulate its heat, it can appear more pink in color, maybe if it's hot, or less pink in color if it's cold. Yeah, it was just it's just fascinating, uh, you know, all these adaptations. And so I have been wanting to cover this one forever. <laughs> <laughs> the largest armadillo ever. Mm, yeah. yeah. I, th- I, th- I think people are familiar with it because it was in the movie Ice Age, you know, the cartoon. And it, it, you see it at museums because that, that outer shell is so huge. And it's the Glyptodont. Mm-hmm. And it was a massive, massive armadillo that emerged or this, this species emerged about 20 million years ago then moved into North America about 3 million years ago. The armor was like a turtle, so it was hard. It, it was, it was, so probably did serve as, as a really good protection. Even some species had spiked tails to help fight off predators. Awesome. It was the size of like a medium-sized car. Like I think of a Volkswagen <laughs> Beetle. That's mm-hmm. the size of it. It's crazy. That's how big it was. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it was nuts. Could you imagine seeing that thing walk around? I want like to. I'd ride it. I'd I love it. <laughs> So weighed over 2,000 kilograms or about 4,500 pounds. 
Man, I'm telling you, somebody, somebody's got to make this movie. I love it. I know, I know. Oh, oh, I mean, Jurassic, just... my boys are really into Jurassic World right now, which is, is yeah. cool because they're dinosaur uh, dorks, and I mean that in the most loving yeah. way. They're turning me yeah, into yeah. one. Uh, but I'm like, man, we need to do that with some of these distinct, ancient, giant mammals. <laughs> yes, yes, and see them. And they only died out at the last ice age, 2,000 right. years ago. and not that long ago. So. So humans, Homo sapiens, were running around with mammoths and all these saber-toothed cats and all these giant megafauna, you know, trying to survive. I just, oh. Yeah, it could, be like, it could be like historic yeah. fiction, sort of, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right, some, some other facts about these things. Pink fairy armadillos, we don't know how long they live. The only data we have is one that was under human care lived for about four years, so they don't really know the average on the pink fairy. Yes. And for anyone that like either comes across a pink fairy armadillo or they think they would want one as a pet, don't do it. They do not do Mm -hmm. well under human care. Uh, We don't know enough about their biology, nutrition, physiology, because the one that lived for four years, that's the longest, that's the longest pink fairy armadillo that's lived under human care in captivity. Uh, But most of them die like in transport. They just, yeah. they don't, they don't do well. Whereas other species such as the Southern three banded armadillo or the giant armadillo, we know a lot more about how to care for them and they live very, very healthy, long lives under human care. And what we do know about other species of armadillos is they can live anywhere from four to 30 years. So in general, the average life expectancy of all the species of armadillos is about 16 years. So mm-hmm. it's suspected that the pink fairy armadillo falls somewhere in there that they just, at this point, do not do well under human care. And there's just some other radical physiology. I mean, their eyes are small, so their vision's not that great, but they have a great sense of touch and hearing. Angie, those claws are enormous. I mean, they say pink fairy armadillos can swim in the sand. They move so fast digging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just... They they can hold their breath for like four to six minutes. Mm-hmm. So they think that's probably what they're doing. They're digging. Because I was asking to my scientists and me, how do they breathe when they're digging? Like, how do you breathe with a sand full of, in your face? Like, where are you getting oxygen? But we know they have very low metabolisms, slow metabolisms. So holding breath, things like that. I mean, so I don't know. That that's It's just their, their strategy of survival. It's just, it's. It's nuts. It is. Well, and I want to touch a little bit more on, as you mentioned, their low body temperature uh, and or basically low basal metabolic rate because it's 40 to 60% less than what it should be for another mammal their size. And because of this, their body temperatures range from like 33 to 36 degrees Celsius or 91 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit. So really low, and we think that some of that beautiful, like silky white fur in the pink fairy armadillo, having all that underneath in their belly, lower ventral area of their body, is to help keep them warm, even though they because they have this low metabolic rate. And it's also something to consider that if they get really wet, their fur, that underbelly fur part, uh, it's hard for them then to thermoregulate. And they can sometimes suffer from hypothermia if they're out in really cold evenings uh, and things like that. So just they have these really important adaptations, like you said, to help them dig and burrow and find their foods that they have evolved to hunt for. But in the same instance, there's other costs and benefits of this. Yeah. Yeah. One of the words I learned this week was fossorial. So diggers. Yeah. 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 And. Oh, yes. That's funny you mentioned Digger because Digger was the name of the male uh, educational armadillo that I worked with at Lincoln Park Zoo. Mm -hmm. And he was wild. Mm -hmm. Like Meatball, she was the sweetest little like princess. She had such good manners. Yeah. yeah. So just gentle and would let you like tickle her belly. Digger, he could close all the way and he'd be the first one to pinch your finger (laughs) if you had anywhere in there. But they were fun. Oh, man, they were so fun to work with and do all the different enrichment things with. So, Well, Angie, the only data we have on pink fairy armadillos, like I said in the beginning, is they eat ants. 
So, and they, they figured they probably eat other things. So what were some of the other things that you might've fed your armadillos at the zoo? Yeah, Chris, great question. So armadillos in general are actually omnivores, which means they eat meat and plants, but by far 90% of their diet is made up from insects. So insectivores or their larvae. And at the zoo, we basically mimic that diet by giving them a chow-based food that was like soaked that had, of course, proteins in it and vitamins and minerals that they needed. And then we would add greens and a little bit of vegetables to it. And then, of course, their favorite was waxworms and mealworms. And so they could dig around in their habitat and find those fresh insects. Yeah. So, you know, they, they like those squishy little insects to eat. Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, for sure. And yeah. they have a good, they have a good sense of smell, right? And then thinking about, you know, what might eat these guys. And, and again, don't have a lot of data on it, but they think, you know, obviously being fossorial, their, their burrows help protect them from predators. But I did read their main concern right now is feral dogs and cats killing them in Argentina. But you probably have things like wild boars, foxes, maybe the ocelot, smaller cats, maybe even pumas that are down there uh, might catch them if they can. Yeah, and I read the car strikes is kind of a big issue too as their yeah. habitats are getting impro- encroached upon by more vehicles and roads and houses and things like that that they unfortunately um, they don't move super fast. And a lot of times they're out at nighttime when a driver can't see them until they're right up next to them. Uh, so I, I do want to say one thing too, for anybody listening, I just don't ever eat armadillo. I know, you know, people do like chili and stuff, like not the country chili, but like armadillo chili, like the, the, the recipe people will eat armadillo. They do carry leprosy Mm -hmm. because of their, uh, you know, low body temperature, things like that. So you can catch leprosy from them. So just be very careful. I, I saw that alert come up. So I thought nutrition, I thought I'd say from humans, you know, I avoid, a, you know, avoid touching uh, any armadillos unless they're at a zoo like where Angie's at, where they're handleable animals. And don't ever eat them because I mean, they spread leprosy and it's just, yeah, no thanks. No thanks. But I throw that in there. Before I know. Well, it <laughs> actually makes sense because Meatball, I mean, she was not named because we want to eat her. <laughs> Don't eat her. Don't no. Eat her. Oh, no. She was just named Meatball because when she would try to roll into a ball, she couldn't quite yeah. do it because her like little claws would stick out and stuff. Yeah. But she did. She was she was smaller than a lot of the other uh, male armadillos. And so she, she kind of looked like a meatball, I guess, when she was first born. So the story went. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yes, no, no, definitely stay away from that. Uh yeah, it does not sound very ap- um. appetizing. <laughs> yes, it does not sound very appetizing. Not not yeah. not a good choice. We have lots of choices in life, so make the right one and don't eat armadillo. Uh, but speaking of that rolling behavior of the ball, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what video game is it where there's an armadillo that rolls in a ball? Is it Sonic the Hedgehog? It's, oh, maybe it's yeah. Like, okay. Well, that's okay. Sorry, mom brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he looks like he looks like an armadillo. Like he does roll up and spin. So. Uh, but no, but so armadillos do roll into balls completely, and then they have the armor, of course. But Chris, what I also learned this week is most species of armadillo do not roll up into a perfect ball like that. I was blessed enough to work with the southern three-banded armadillo, and they are one of only two species in the in the genus Talipoetus. Tully Plavis, something like that, that are able to completely roll up into a perfect armored ball by tucking their head into their chest and their tail up into their belly as well. And basically their head has a triangle plate on it and their tail has a triangle plate on it. And those two triangles fit together. And then of course they have the round shell. And so they really can protect themselves pretty well from most predators but all the other species, including the pink fairy armadillo, they can curl up and use their armor to protect them, but they cannot form a completely enclosed ball. So I thought that was interesting because I just assumed all, all armadillos could do it. I, I don't know. I guess it was a myth 
I guess that was just a poor assumption on my part. And that's why we do this podcast to actually do the research. And so, yes, myth busting here today that most species of armadillos cannot roll into a perfect ball, just the Southern three banded and the Brazilian three banded. So pretty interesting stuff. Uh huh. Uh huh. But before I dive into pink fairy armadillo behavior, I do have to mention the screaming hairy armadillo. Oh gosh. <laughs> Just because of its name. But it gets yeah, its name yeah. because it does make a really awful screaming like noise. Where mm-hmm. I worked with the Southern Three Banded and they didn't make hardly any vocalizations. I'd hear I'd hear them sniffing around, I'd hear their claws a lot, digging, but I didn't I didn't really hear any vocalizations. But the screaming hairy armadillo gets its name from the sound that it makes when it's threatened. But don't be confused. The screaming hairy armadillo is not a coward. It's not screaming to scare you. It's just using it as a defense mechanism. And at the San Diego Zoo, they've actually reported these armadillos are not scared of things and they'll scream. And then they've been known to throw their bodies on top of snakes and kill the snakes by cutting them with their sharp edges of their tails. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> Scream. I know. Oh, so that's, I had to bring that up because yeah. I thought it was super fascinating. But in general, armadillo behavior in a nutshell is that they're not super social creatures. They spend most of their time alone, a lot of time sleeping, probably because of that low metabolic rate. Uh, in fact, certain species have been reported to sleep up to 16 hours a day. That is about in between my dog and my cat, right? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And they're they're going to forage for their food, their insects, uh, usually in the evening or in the early morning hours. And a lot of species are considered basically somewhat nocturnal. Uh, And so when we dive into pink fairy armadillo behavior, well, there's really not a lot known. Researchers do think that they're also nocturnal. And that because of the harsh kind of desert, savanna, grassland areas that they live in, they may enter a topor, which is like another phase of hibernation, not as deep, but where once again, they're, they slow down their heart rate and their metabolic rate even lower than it already is to conserve nutrients because armadillos in general, they just don't store a lot of body fat. Uh, They don't have all the reserves that you would see in other species of mammals that we've covered on this podcast. And at this point, researchers are assuming that the pink fairy armadillo is also pretty much a solitary type creature, unless it's breeding season, because they've pretty much only been observed in the wild alone. But when I say that, it's not like there's been a lot of research done on them. So all you budding zoologists and wildlife ecologists out there, animal behaviorists, they're looking for a species that we need more data about. The pink fairy armadillo is way up there because it's we're really, really lacking in what we know about its general behavior, about its home range. And these critical behaviors and kind of ecological factors are important to know if we're going to conserve the land that they live in. Uh, So it's just at this point, there's still a lot, a lot of work to be done for the pink fairy armadillo, which is shocking to me because I know they're not the, you know, they're not a jaguar or uh, even like a sloth or some of these iconic South American animals, but boy, are they cute. And I think they should be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they are. They're adorable. And we talked about the screaming hairy armadillo and its vocalization. We once again, with a pink fairy armadillo, we don't know if it has many vocalizations. But there was one anecdotal report that when it was under human care and they were cleaning its cage or something, it would run around the cage screaming. So it might share some traits with the hairy screaming armadillo. Um, And nine banded armadillos, which are in my neck of the woods here in Florida, are for our friends in Texas. Interestingly enough, the nine-banded armadillo is a state animal for Texas. So I thought that was kind of cool. But the nine-banded armadillos makes this noise called chucking. So it uses it in various situations so they don't know if it's a threat call or a peaceful call. Just, uh, once again, more research that, that needs to be done. I just think it would be a fun species to study. Like, you know, so if any budding scientists out there, you need an area that needs to be filled or a niche, here's one. 
Absolutely. Uh, How fun to, I mean, like I said, all the videos I watched um, of them or pictures that I saw. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, how darling would that be? And you would definitely get a lot of yeah. papers published because we just don't yeah. really know a lot. Yeah, it's, it's just it's an area of opportunity, you know. I mean, like, I love my elephants. I'd love to go study elephants. But if I was a young biologist, I'd be like, ooh, okay, here's a, here's an area that needs needs research. So let's go chase them. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. One of my favorite parts of this podcast is learning about the courtship behavior of animals prior to breeding. And once again, there's just really nothing on the pink fairy armadillo. Researchers speculate it's not that different than other armadillo courtship behaviors that are known. For instance, if a female is receptive, she's been she's often known to tail wag at the male when he approaches her. So if she's wagging her tail, then the male's like, okay, the, the coast is clear. So we've seen that in our nine-banded armadillos, but once again, we just we don't really know about the pink fairy armadillos. Yeah, yeah. So what do we know about repro? I mean, you know, and, and not only pink fairies, but you know, other armadillos. Yeah, Chris, that's a great question, and that's why a lot of the species of armadillos that do live under human care, we've actually learned a lot about armadillo reproduction from other species that we can extrapolate to pink fairies, but we need those young scientists or old scientists or any scientist really to go out there in the field and study and prove this. But we do know that in pink fairy armadillos that males uh, have no external testes and the female, she has um, two nipples and for general armadillo reproduction, We know the gestation period can be anywhere from about two to five months. And a female can give birth anywhere from like one to 15 young. It just depends on the species. And she'll give birth in a burrow. And the burrows are good size, uh, depending on the species. They can be up to 15 feet or four and a half meters wide. And uh, once again, it all depends on which region they live in and how deep they go. And baby armadillos are called pups. And they mature pretty quickly, and depending on the species, they can be weaned by two to four months. And most species of armadillos reach sexual maturity between nine and 12 months. But in diving into armadillo reproduction, Chris, I found out a really cool fact about nine-banded and seven-banded armadillos. These species are pretty well studied in the reproductive world because they're known for their polyembrony. Do you know what that is? Who multiple embryos? Yes. Okay, okay. And what else though about that? Uh, multiple placentas? Not one. Big no. Uh, see, this will be the next one for our quiz show. I'll help you out, buddy. Yeah. Uh, because you and I are repro dorks, and so I right, thought right, this right, was kind right. of interesting. And it might be more of a term yeah. with uh, uh, these species that do this. And and polyembryony, if I'm saying that right, is basically where two or more embryos develop from a single fertilized egg. So if we think of a human example, okay. that's going to be yeah. identical twins. And we, and it's pretty yeah, twins, rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually they're fraternal, but identical twins are possible. But Chris, in the nine-banded armadillo, they always have four identical twins. Every time. Four identical twins. And the seven-banded armadillo can have up to eight or 15 identical twins that all come from the one egg. 
And so with identical twins, whether it's humans or the nine-banded armadillo, keep in mind that the offspring's genetics are different than mom and dad's, right? A combination of mom and dad's. But they are identical to each other, literally like clones of each other. And so the nine-banded armadillo and seven-banded armadillo are really like kind of like repro heroes for people that are doing reproductive research and trying to understand basically when you have a genetically identical individual, how, how is the environment influencing your behavior, your epigenetics, just in general, your biological makeup. It's kind of like when those, the one astronaut brother went up, into the space station for many, many months. And they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, they studied, and, yeah. mm-hmm. and then when he, yeah. he came down, they studied all the physiological changes that happened to him. And then they had his identical twin brother as a control. Twin, yeah. So mm-hmm. because it's, this isn't really seen a lot. So identical twins are, are a pretty rare phenomenon in the animal world. Although it's polyembryony, like I said, happens in humans, invertebrates, other vertebrates besides the armadillos, it's pretty rare. It's more seen in invertebrates, like a certain species of wasp. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Chris, we already kind of hypothesized and had fun talking about why the shell developed, this armor developed, potentially. Mm-hmm. We don't know. It's always fun just to think these things because you, yeah, yeah. you and I are science dorks. So researchers have hypothesized why the nine-banded armadillo do this now they don't know the answer but why do you think well like what would the benefit be of having four identical twins if you're a nine-banded armadillo every time you give birth i mean you're spread your genetics i mean i don't i mean because we really want to celebrate genetic diversity i mean that's our celebrate or push and that's the goal of reproduction is to maintain diverse genetics to combat diseases and things so I'm just wondering if it's to promote superior genetics, you know, like mom and dad, she chooses, does mate choice. You're a superior dad. I'm going to produce as many as I can from you. Then she goes off and breeds with another guy, another guy, another male armadillo, produce more from him. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, Chris. No, I think you're onto something here because researchers speculate once again that depending on the environmental conditions, it's either going to really favor if these offspring survive due to parasites and things like that. So if the environmental conditions are super favorable, then yes, all four of them are going to do great. And it's kind of a gamble because yes, if it's, there's a lot of parasites at that time or maybe harsh weather, then yes, they're not going to do well. So the other hypothesis that researchers threw out there is that that may be due to just their physiological adaptations and low metabolic rate and things like that, that there is a constraint or a hardship on reproduction in general for them. And Mm -hmm. that maybe just having the one egg split four ways is going to be easier for them and on for them in general um, compared to some of the other styles of reproduction. So we don't know. And hopefully if you're bored, you fast forward to this part, but I just, it's, it's always the animal kingdom is just so fascinating. And, and, and with evolution, we always think of, okay, what's the cost? What's the benefit? Mm -hmm. Uh, What's the payoff? Mm -hmm. Like why, why? Um, And once again, we don't see this in all species of armadillos by, by any stretch. And so with the pink fairy, we have no idea if they're identical twins or not. Um, Once again, it's only been seen in the nine and seven banded. Right. Right. Probably similar. I mean, probably that's some, some similar strategy from way back. Yeah. Really interesting. Well, we talked about conservation and, you know, climate change is a major threat that would drive them to extinction. Mm -hmm. If it continues out of control, obviously feral dogs and cats are, are a major, major problem. So this is a species where you just don't have the data on it, but probably is suffering, could be possibly considered endangered. We don't know. But are there any organizations that are supporting armadillos out there? Yeah, Chris. We'll put on our show notes. The IUCN Red List has a list of several species of armadillos that are either near threatened or data deficient. For example, the giant armadillo is considered vulnerable 
because its population has decreased big time uh, by like over 30% in the last 20 years. The Andean hairy armadillo, once again, vulnerable. And I mean, out of the 20 to 21 species, there's several of them that have issues. And then a few that are data deficient, like the pink hairy armadillo. So we'll put that on our show notes. And before I get to the nonprofit organization that I've picked to talk about today, I want to give a big shout out to several zoos that work really hard on armadillo conservation when they work with SSPs and they work internationally to help secure armadillo populations. So, of course, a huge shout out to Lincoln Park Zoo for the work that they do with the Southern Three-Banded Armadillo. And then Zoological Nacional de Chile works to conserve the giant armadillo. The Edinburgh Zoo in the Highland Wildlife Park also conserve the giant armadillo, as well as the Pittsburgh Zoo in Ohio and in, in the States, and Brevard Zoo in Florida and the States, and the Columbus Zoo in Ohio and the United States. So several, and I, I probably, I'm probably missing some, so I apologize, but yeah. there's a lot of work to be done uh, for conserving species like the giant armadillo which is just really cool. You got to that we got to put we got to cover that one sometime. That's that's really neat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But the conservation organization that I picked today, Chris, is called World Land Trust. That's worldlandtrust.org. You can find them on Facebook or they have a really beautiful website and they do a lot of work to conserve giant armadillos and their habitat. As a nonprofit, They work really, really hard to save these critically threatened habitats that are experiencing a lot of impacts with not only urbanization, but also global climate change, as Chris mentioned. Uh, They do this worldwide, but they spend a lot of time in South America trying to protect giant armadillo habitats. So check them out. We'll put them on our show notes and uh, big kudos to World Land Trust. And of course, all the zoos that I mentioned that are fighting hard for this just really unique, been evolving for a long time, just special, special creature. And I know there's researchers out there that are trying to get more data about the pink fairy armadillo. So kudos to you. I I, I hope you keep up the good work and hopefully this podcast will inspire some of our listeners to come join you. No, that's great. And uh, just real quick conservation tip this week, since I'll go back to the beginning about ecotourism. And if you can, you know, depending on where you are in the world, I know a lot of us are locked in the countries that we're in. We can't really travel right now internationally, but if you can support local ecotourism or you're looking to be able to get out and do things, go support your natural, your national parks, your local parks, any organization near your homes, where at least locally we can be, you know, promoting and, and helping sustain all these ecotourism operations or conservation organizations near your, your, your home. I know it's hard right now. It's, we're all feeling the pressure, all, every single one of us out there. Uh, the only thing I'll, I'll say in parting is thank you for listening. Just take care of your health. Hopefully the this vaccine comes through soon for everybody that we can be immunized and get this pandemic over with. I mean, it's been going on nearly a year now. And my heart goes out to all of you, you know, as, as we all continue to fight this as, as one species, you know, a homo sapien. We're all fighting it. We're all in the same boat. Whether you live in New Zealand, where I'm at, Australia, you know, in the States where Angie's at, Europe, you know, we all just need to, to look out for each other. So just stay safe, stay healthy, and be back next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening, learning, and conserving. We appreciate you. Bye-bye. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.